Let's look together now again at this passage in Matthew chapter 1 at the end of the first chapter. I said last week that it would take us a few weeks to make sure we consider all that is being said. We characterize this passage at the end of Matthew chapter 1 in this way, that there's an emphasis on three persons, an emphasis on two names, and an emphasis on one mission. There are three persons at work, that's what we rested in last week, three persons at work here, Father, Son, and Spirit. And now this week, I want to consider how this unique emphasis of two names, the child is called something. There are two specific names given to the child that is to be born, and those two names uniquely and specifically point to this one grand mission that makes Christmas Christmas, that makes the gospel the gospel. So I'm going to read starting in the 18th verse down to the 25th verse, end of Matthew chapter 1. Let's look at this together and then I'll, I'll pray. The gospel according to Matthew, in the first chapter, 18th verse. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together just for a moment. Father, you know us this morning. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our restlessness, you know our exhaustion, you know our battles, our hurts, our temptations. You see straight through the facade of our pride, of our stubbornness, and I'm so grateful that though you see all of this, that you welcome us in. And more than welcome us in, thank you Father, for speaking, you've shown us yourself, not only in creation, but in these words. And I pray now that we would see and understand and rest in Scripture in a way that would be alive, that our confession concerning these words would not be idle or dead, but help us to think, to ponder, to worship, and to love more deeply as we study. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the most important thing you've ever named? The way that question is worded may be offensive to you because you named a child and I just called your child a thing. Naming is a powerful, powerful mechanism in the world. Language would not work if we could not name things. A name of something 
gives to, imbues to that thing a kind of identity that then is carried out into the world so that when it interacts with the people around it or other object, it is placed and viewed and described in a certain way. So naming is unbelievably powerful. And the question becomes, what's the most important thing you've ever named? The most obvious, of course, is children. And anyone who has had the task of naming a human being realizes how absolutely absurd it is. It's really shocking to think about placing a name on a person. It can feel intimidating to many. There are some times when the name is obvious, and if you've ever been in a situation where you and a spouse agreed perfectly on naming a person, well, that is a good sign. Blessings to you. Because often, you can tell exactly how it's gone if you ask a couple in the midst of thinking about a child. If you say something like, oh, are you thinking about names? You can tell immediately whether or not there is disagreement or difficulty in that situation. Sometimes you ask the question, and it ices over everything like a Sprite commercial immediately, because perhaps one person has an attachment to a name that the other one hates. We have seven generations of Poindexters in this family, and I'm not the one to stop it. And the wife basically just says, well, I will murder you if we name our child Poindexter. Apologies to any Poindexters in the room. Naming it turns out, is massively important. Sometimes people are involved in inventing things. Perhaps in your work, you've invented or discovered some new thing, some new math formula, some new idea. If you have, then you know that at a certain point you get to name it. And it is often a, scene of, uh, it's a, a sign of great respect and honor to have your name placed on something. Haley's Comet. When I was a kid, Haley's Comet captured my imagination. It flew by in the 80s, and I remember just thinking, Haley's the coolest. Turned out Haley was actually a popular girl name at the time. Annie Haley was instantly better in my mind. I remember specifically in about sixth grade, in the back of the small town where I went to school, wasn't big enough in our rural area to have a high school, so K through 8, in about sixth grade, tucked away in the library, We were supposed to be studying. Me and a couple of friends found a book, a book that had been compiled about the history of our town. It was locally sourced. It seemed to buy some grandmothers or at least some ancestors of people that we knew. And there in that book, I read a story that I longed for. It was the story of one Mr. Manville. The name of the small town I grew up in was Manville, North Dakota. It was a town of 300 people, and the joke always is that I grew grew up in the suburbs of that town. That's the way that farm life was. There was the little town center, but everyone was on farmsteads around it. And there in that library, I sat in awe and in wonder that our little town was not a ville. It wasn't Manville. That would sound macho. This was Manville, M-A-N-V-E-L. And the reason it was named so is because a gentleman with the last name Manville had founded the town. He set up a trading post, it was near a little river, and over the course of time, people began to be associated with it, and then, because he was there first, he got to put his name on it, and it was in that moment that I was first in awe of the fact that you could put your name on something like that, and also lamented and turned to my friend and said, I'm kind of mad that everything's been taken to name. By the time I was in sixth grade, brute forcing your way to naming something was no longer in vogue in the world. And even if I had the possibility of being a kind of explorer, traveler, conqueror, I was probably not going to accomplish it. 
And I remember saying distinctly, isn't it weird knowing you'll never have a town named after you? We knew instinctually what an amazing thing it was to name. It turns out that in Scripture, this instinct or this idea of putting your name on something is part and parcel to the story of the Bible. You know, the first job given to mankind, the first job that any human being ever had, this is before the fall, work existed before sin. Some people are very sad to hear that. Work existed before sin. The very first job was a naming job. Adam is placed in the garden, and amongst all of his tending rules, the first one that we hear about is him given the task of putting names on things. He legitimately had a moment where all of the wildlife and the fauna and flowers are paraded in front of him, and he, for the first time, said, aardvark, or whatever it was. He named things. This is a powerful, and I would say, imitation of God type of reality. There is a creative force that's taking place when you lay claim to the name of something. As you continue through Scripture, what you find is that there are moments, and in fact, it's impossible to tell the story of salvation without seeing that God often dives into human history, and most of the story of redemption is told through a series of names or renames. When God wants to get active in bringing about his purposes in the world, world, he goes up to someone and he says, let's think about what you're called. You're no longer going to be Abram, You're going to be Abraham. You're going to be father of nations. Not that Abram is a bad name, but there's going to be something about your name. I'm laying claim to what you're called in the world because it's going to tell a story. He does the same with Sarai and Sarah. Then the way that Isaac comes about, the child of promise, renamed. You can think of stories with Jacob to Israel. You're no longer Jacob, but you'll be Israel, a representation of my people in the world. Just prior to, and Luke shows the interchange of Mary with her cousin Elizabeth. And there as well, John the Baptist is named John the Baptist by an intervention of God. His father told, you will name this child. There's a description even of him being mute and unable to speak. And the child is born and he rushes in and he writes down on a piece of paper, no, 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 I'm not going to miss out on the name. The name is John. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, you can't tell the story of the missionary journeys of the world without recognizing that when Jesus interacts with people and when God lays claim to someone, the name is often something that changes about them. Saul becomes Paul. Simon becomes Simon Peter. Laying claim to a name is a powerful powerful thing in the world. And what happens here in Matthew chapter 1 is what we don't want to gloss over, and that is is that Matthew highlights for us uniquely two different names that are given to Jesus, or given to this child. I spoiled it. (laughs) Like, Jesus has a name for the child as a spoiler. The idea is there are two names given to this child, and what we want to consider is to think about the way that God intervenes and First, he gives a specific name, and second, a a prophecy is highlighted because in the moment of the naming of the child, we're going to see through a particular lens at his mission in the world. So a working 
title for today, or the thing that we're thinking about, would be something like, At the Name. What takes place at the name or at the naming? We're going to realize later that all of history is going to split into two by the name of Jesus Christ. So what happens at the name or at the naming is maybe the idea. I had a secondary, very quickly to the, to the cutting room floor draft version of a title of this talk or sermon that would have been something like this. Hello, his name is. You see why that's cutting room floor? So that's on the cutting room floor, but if I had to say literally what happens, that's what takes place. The king of the universe enters into the world and God steps in and says, hello. And then he's going to be very clear with Joseph and Mary. His name is, and then emphasizes two names. So there's going to be two names with one mission here. And we're going to look at each of them to be clear. It's obvious to us, verse 21, Joseph is instructed in the midst of his fear, wanting to set away his wife because she's pregnant. One of the things to calm him is that God says, It's okay, I want you to know I have a plan for this child, and one of them is his name. God intervenes to lay claim to the introduction of this child forever. You ever think about that? When you name a person, you've laid claim to the way that they are introduced and with the way they are interacted with for the rest of their life. Tomorrow, if you meet someone brand new, and they say, hey, what's your name? The moment you shake out, put out your hand and shake their hand and say, I'm... Barry, or I'm John, or I'm Jim, that is a reenactment of the claim that your parents made in introducing you. Every single time the name will be uttered, more territory will be gathered to this claim of name. And so when the child comes, God the Father says, I'm going to name. I'm laying claim here. And verse 21 says, when he comes to Joseph, Joseph, I got this. You'll, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. For, this is where it's connected, the name Jesus is connected to his mission in the world. You'll call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now let's read from Luke chapter 1 as well. We said last week a distinctive between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew focuses on the response of Joseph. Luke is from the perspective of Mary. And I want you to see how kind and loving God is. He makes sure that Mary and Joseph both get word concerning the name. He wards off any domestic disputes concerning the naming of the child. Joseph does not want to be thrown to the wolves by going to his wife and saying, the kid's going to be named Jesus. And she says, I hate that name. So Luke chapter 1, we get the same thing happening except from Mary's perspective. It says this in verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, the same name that Joseph is given to call this child. And it's going to be tied to what he does and that is to save his people from their sins. Now, we're going to get to the meaning of Jesus' name in just a moment. But a couple of interesting things, or maybe it's just interesting to me to think about. The question might come to mind, how common was the name Jesus at this day and age? What would Joseph have thought? 
Imagine an angel comes to you and tells you to name a child. It's a very different circumstance. If you woke up tomorrow and you said, it's really strange, I had a dream, I'm supposed to have a child, and God said specifically to name the child Justin. Other than it being an odd dream or some kind of thing like that, no one would say, Justin, that's strange. It would be a little bit different. Maybe if you woke up tomorrow morning, you said, I had a dream, and an angel came to me and said, I'm going to have a child, and I need to name the child Zugzwanged. You see how it's a different connotation? You think to yourself, okay, now many things are odd. So the question comes to my mind, I don't know if it comes to your mind, is how common was Jesus? Other than some Hispanic kind of places, Jesus, Jesus is not a common name nowadays, so the question is, how common is it then? It turns out that Jesus was a very common name in that day and age. It more or less equated to the name Joshua, which was a long-standing, sturdy name in the Hebrew tradition. And so the Jewish people would have commonly named their kids Jesus. It was one of the names that would have made the list of popular names which is interesting because if you're going to name a child, that's something that parents often go to. They look at lists of names. Have you ever seen one of these? One of these lists that goes through most popular girl names and then it starts in 1960 and it shows. And for girls, it's honestly just 40 years of Emily. That's just like the, it's just always that. It just goes all the way through it, right? The boys' names have a little bit more, but you can actually track and you could pinpoint, if I just told you the name of someone, someone who was attuned to and understood the prevalence of names in a given time might guess when they were born. For instance, if I was going to write a story about the 80s, and I wanted you to believe this story, and I wanted, to be, I wanted it to be a fiction work that immersed someone in the spirit of it, I would not do myself any favors by having every other male's named Caden or Braden, because Names that are den, names like that, are a rather new naming convention. And anyone who read that story would immediately roll their eyes and say, sure, okay, tell me about 19, early 1980s Braden, okay. It would betray the spirit of the story. This is interesting to me because many people have accused the writers of the New Testament as imitating followers of Christ one of the major claims that the Bible is not to be trusted is that, in fact, the stories concerning Jesus were written hundreds of years later, far removed from the culture and time that they were in. Some critical scholars even say that the most likely scenario is that the Bible was compiled maybe some 300 years and easily hundreds and hundreds of miles from the time that it states to have taken place. And so this is a small thing I don't believe that we are to trust in these kind of things, but a man named Peter J. Williams, he's a doctor of theology in England, has done very interesting work in the canon of Scripture. And one of the angles that he takes that was fascinating to me is to discuss the commonness of names in that era. And his basic premise is this, that if the New Testament were written, in fact, 300 years later, in a foreign land outside of the culture, but they were going to try to tell a believable story, one of the things that would be most difficult to do is to get not only the correct names, but the correct names in the correct prevalence. Does that make sense? 
So the idea would be, just like me trying to write a story from the 80s, if you got the names wrong, someone would read it and say, this isn't believable at all. You're using all Egyptian names that just got going 100 years later or something like that. It would have especially been difficult because no one had the internet baby name history site to go to. And so Peter J. Williams, he looks through and he says, well, we can actually count these things. The Bible is a book amongst books that are written at that time. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of writing concerning family records and military records. So we, can, we could construct in some way the most common names that are for this time. It turns out many of the names are not surprising. One of the most popular, if not the most popular male name at this time and day and age, Joseph. Jesus also near the top of a very common name. Other names that were uniquely popular at this period of time. I'm trying to think of a name that was uniquely popular at some period in time. Um, I always feel like my name is sort of out of there. I asked my parents, what were you doing? Where did this come from? But it's, there's not a lot of new Lances being born. It turns out that one name that was extremely popular at this time in this culture, but not many others, the name Simon. Simon, becomes of course Simon Peter, would have been a name that was extremely culturally tied to this particular moment. And one of the things that Williams finds as he studies is that it turns out that the New Testament is unbelievably in line with not only the kinds of names being used, but their frequency. In other words, If there was a class of a hundred children, how many little Henrys would there be? And again, these are not the reasons to. Our faith is not based on these kind of things. But it's an intriguing study to look at stuff like this and say that the scripture is consistent and trustworthy, even down to the smallest things like the commonness of names. So Jesus is a common name. Its significance comes not from the uniqueness of it. Jesus is not going to be known and celebrated throughout all of history because he had a unique name. He's not Jalen or Kobe or LeBron. He's much more Larry. The significance of Jesus' life is going to come instead from the sturdiness and depth of the meaning of his name. The meaning Joshua or Joshua, where Jesus comes from into this story for us, quite legitimately means it's a combining of two words, God or Yahweh saves, or God is a deliverer, God and rescue. If you throw those two words together, God and rescue, you get the name that is placed on the child who is to be born. It's why verse 21 says so clearly, you will call his name Jesus for, there's a gar there in Greek, it means because of or leading to or coming from this Fact, he's going to be Jesus because he will save people from their sins. Joshua was a common name that was given because Joshua was the leader following Moses, who finally completed the rescue of God's people from slavery into the promised land. The idea was there, the command was there, the promise was there, but it wasn't accomplished until Joshua came to complete the rescue. And at this moment in time, 
When God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son have covenanted and pacted together to bring about a final rescue, a child is born into the world miraculously by a move of the Spirit, and the name that is placed upon him, his introduction, will be his mission for all eternity future. Who is this child? This child is God's rescue in the flesh. This is God saves. From here on out, every time Jesus is introduced or named in the world, he will be a declaration that God saves. This was a down payment, a stamp of approval, a stake in the ground for what God is about. He is a savior. He seeks that which is lost. And from this moment forward now, we are taught to, what Matthew's introducing is for us to look at and to say, huh, did Jesus live into his name? You ever thought about that? You ever have that conversation with your friends? What if your name was different? Do you seem like a, have you ever heard this before? Do people think that you seem like your name? Oh, you, you seem like a Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, you totally do. You know, some people, their name is so a part of their persona and who they are, you just think, how could you have been any other name? I once knew a hope, and I just thought to myself, you are hope. That's exactly who you are. It'd be so weird to call you Wendy or something. You know what I mean? Like, they, wouldn't, they just wouldn't work. What Matthew's inviting us to do is to say, did Jesus live into his name? And I believe that not only through his personhood, through his righteousness, but also in his very words and in his mission in the world, his mission flows from this name. In Matthew chapter 9, which we're going to get to in five or six years or something, I don't know. In Matthew chapter 9, no, I promise we'll be there soon, next year. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus reminds people that he doesn't only have the name, but this is what he's about. And it turns out that this fact that God saves and how Jesus interacted, people either loved or they hated. It says this in verse 10 of Matthew 9. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It's an amazing picture. So Jesus hangs out and it says, many tax collectors and sinners came. Verse 11 when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And I believe what Jesus is saying is essentially this. You don't know who I am, and you don't get my name and my life, what it's about. If you don't learn what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus lives into his name. If you said, God is a rescuer, that's what this person's name is, then you would ask yourself, well, how do they interact with people who need to be rescued? And it turns out that Jesus was loved by and loved those who needed to be rescued. He ran to, he welcomed, he gave grace upon grace upon grace. He was overly merciful to the worst kinds of people because those were the kinds of people who saw in Jesus the reality of his name. It was only those who knew they were sick 
who looked in Jesus and heard his name and said, yes, God saves, and they were drawn to him. It was only those who couldn't see because of dimness, who were in dark, that imagined the hope from someone with a name like God saves and God rescues, and went to him and says, I need light. And on the flip side, those who did not believe they needed to be rescued, those who felt that they were working with God to be a rescue for the rest of those people who were lost, they missed Jesus completely. In fact, they hated him to the point of wanting to put him to death. It turns out that understanding and receiving the name Jesus becomes a kind of litmus test for getting him at all. You either are the kind of person who when you hear God saves and God saves is a person, that either makes your heart sore because you say to yourself, I know the depth of my sin. I see the longing of my soul. I know I can't do it. I've turned everywhere else and come up dry. Jesus is life to me. You either have that response or you hear the name Jesus and you're a little bit annoyed that anyone would suggest that you need a rescue. In fact, God may come to save you. Jesus may come to say to you, I am the embodiment of God's deliverance to you, and you're slightly agitated that he didn't go to the person who clearly needs it more than you first. Look, uh, that's great you've come to rescue and everything, but really, I mean, have you seen how bad those other people are? Why, Why are you pointing me out? I'm so much better than the rest of those people who clearly need to be saved more or first. But if you don't see Jesus that way, then this announcement of the birth of God come in the flesh to rescue will be joy to you. It becomes life itself. And Jesus, in the way that he lived, the way that he was announced, he lived into his name. So we see the Son of God being announced as God rescues. We see the Son of God interacting with sinners as a rescuer. We see the Son of God dying a rescuer's death, throwing his life, his innocent life, to absorb the wrath of God for those who are in peril. And from top to bottom, head to toe, every single cell of his being, Jesus is and was and forever will be God's rescue. That's what's being introduced in his name. So at Christmas time, what we proclaim to the world, in fact, the thing that we have to say if we say anything at all, is that Jesus has come and his name is everything. It's why we become so, from an outside view perhaps, why we're so adamant and crazy about Jesus. Why do we insist on worshiping him? And why do we insist that he is alone the way back to God? Because he has been announced as and only he lived as and only he died as God's rescue for sinners like us. Now, the second thing that's amazing, his mission is highlighted, of course, in his very name, but the question could still come into the into view, well, how is this going to happen? So, God is going to rescue, we like that, 
But how's it going to happen? Imagine that you were given the task of some elaborate rescue scheme. Perhaps you needed to invade. C.S. Lewis once said that the message of Christmas is that we live in any enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is. And Lewis goes on to say that Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And you might say that he has landed in disguise. And he is now calling us to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. That the work of Jesus is to sabotage all that is evil. To undo all that has been broken. And we can enter into this. The question becomes, if this was your plan, if there's a great enemy-occupied territory, and you have the resources of God at your fingertips, how do you orchestrate the rescue? And here in Matthew chapter 1, we get not only the fact that God does rescue, but how he's going to do it. You see, God is not content with a mere air war. He has given us his word. He's revealed himself in all creation. There's been commands and prophets. And God is not content with merely speaking. And God is not content with sending someone else to do it. The reality of Jesus being named Emmanuel, there's this passage from Isaiah 7, where the hope of Israel being relieved from their enemies is in view. The reality of his name being Emmanuel, God with us, means not only is the the fact that God rescues good news, but how he rescues is good news. And here is how God chose to rescue. Where we have personally severed relationship with God, he said, I want relationship. Where we have rejected and pushed away, God says, I will draw near. Where we have failed again and again and again to climb to God, God says, I will climb down. Where we have held coldness and resentment in our hearts toward him, he has said, I will come with nearness and intimacy to you. The reality is that not only does God rescue, but he rescues in such a way to communicate to us that he has a deep and an abiding love. That God will not be content with us being let off the hook for our sins. In other words, can you imagine a kind of love that would say something like this? These people are annoying. They keep getting it wrong. They break my rules all the time. They're unholy. They don't want what I give them. I love them. So I don't want them to be lost forever, but I'm just over it. Could you imagine a love like this? Imagine him interacting and saying, like, let's save them, but create a different planet so I don't have to see them. I don't even want them in my peripheral view. Just let's not have them be punished forever, but I just can't handle it. In other words, God could have held a cold resentment. He could have resent what we gave to him in a rejection of relationship. But it is good news that God not only wants to set us free and to forgive us of our sins, but he wants to be reconciled to us. In the most difficult moments of your life, in the times when you don't understand, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death itself, God has saved in such a way to ensure that he would be walking with you. God, in fact, came so near to us that he put on human flesh itself and became one of us. 
so that the very experience is down to every subtle disappointment, so that every single bit of the minutia of our broken relationship could be put back. God himself drew near. And scripture says that after all, it is the nearness of God that is our good. God has drawn us near by putting on human flesh. And in the end of all things, it will be God's nearness that will be our joy. All throughout scripture, the promise that is given so that God's people would not have to be fearful is what? I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. Like a father holding a child's, the back of their banana bike seat. Because remember banana seats. Banana bike seat. And going along with and saying, we're going to learn. You might crash a little bit, but I got this. I'm with you. Like someone who sits and holds a hand in the moment of death. And grief explodes from someone's heart and soul and face in tears. And someone sits with them and says, I just want you to know I'm with you. Presence is a gift in and of itself. And God as a rescuer who comes with his presence means that gospel is multiplied upon itself. The hope of the world is not just that we'll finally be let off scot-free, but that we will belong and that God will be with us. All you have been called to do, all you've been called to be, God is saying to you in Jesus by his very name, I will be with you. In fact, Jesus says at the end of his ministry to his disciples, I'm going to send you into the world now and I want you to know two things. I'm going to send the helper. He's going to be God's presence with you. He'll indwell you. This is good news. And second, everywhere you go and whatever you encounter, in whatever language or whatever place, I will be with you to the end of the age. There is no greater hope than that, that God is with us. And it's these two ideas, not only that God rescues, but how he rescues with his presence that make Christmas so joyful. There's something to reflect on, I think, as well in the midst of this. And that is because this name is so powerful, because the act of naming is so significant, because God came and said his name will be Jesus, he's going to be God with humanity, there is something extremely real and important about this time of year. And that is this fact. Scripture tells us That there is now, this name was given, and there is now no other name by which we must be saved. If you had to tell this story from beginning to end about the importance of Christmas, one way you could learn to tell it is to say, well, how did the disciples tell it? How did those people who walked with Jesus, who heard from him, who saw him interact with sinners, how do they describe now what we should make of this child born with the name Jesus? And Acts chapter 4 tells us, The apostle Peter, who has just witnessed the life of Jesus, who has seen him die a sinner's death, though innocent, who knows his resurrection, who's seen him ascend into heaven, who's experienced the coming presence of the Spirit of God, he stands up and he says, here's a summary of what we should do with this news. In verse 12 of Acts chapter 4, he says this, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Here is the great double-edged sword of the coming of the Son of God. 
for all of those who receive this child, all of those who receive God's rescue in the person of Jesus, there is great rejoicing in salvation. There is salvation in the Son. But we, almost, we also must confess this reality. That there is salvation in nowhere, no one else. Christmas is an invitation to joy and a warning of loss for all of those who would reject God's rescue. It's why Christianity insists that not every religion can be true, that not every way back to God is fine. By declaring who he is in the person of his son, the child that is given, God is saying once and for all over all humanity, with Jesus you either find rescue or you reject this salvation and are lost forever. All of history hangs on his name. That's what scripture tells us. All of history hangs on his name. And so Jesus' birth announcement his holy, perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection and overcoming the grave, his ascension into the heavens at the right hand of the Father, his intercession for us now is declared and rehearsed year after year after year because in Jesus we have hope in his name. And We invite people to joy while recognizing if they neglect so great a salvation, there is no other hope. So my desire this morning, as we have read these things and prayed these things and thought through this, is to be reminded again of our need for rescue. Do you see in the flesh God's nearness to you in the person of Jesus? Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Have you reckoned with Jesus? That's the question. Because Scripture tells us that the wonder of His coming is not just that it's a miraculous virgin birth, not just that He enacted miracles, not just that He died, not just that He rose again, but that He is now the centerpiece of all history. 